1: What's the most you've ever lost as the result of a mistake?
0: An item of value, an
1: opportunity, a relationship. Life is a series of decisions, many of them binary, each one offering potential paths that fate may take us down.
0: Every action has an effect, every choice a consequence.
1: And sometimes, in the rarest of occasions, a person is presented with a life or death choice that will come to define them.
0: That was the case for Senator Ted Kennedy in the summer of 1969 on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts.
1: Though the official account of what happened that night is somewhat muddled, the facts are as follows. Late at night, after a party, Kennedy set off down Chappaquiddick Road in his Oldsmobile. With him was Mary Jo Kopechny, a former campaign staffer for the recently assassinated Robert Kennedy.
0: There was an accident. The car hit a barrier and flipped over into the water. Ted got out and survived, but Mary Jo was left trapped in the car.
1: Ted Kennedy did not inform the police about the accident until 10 hours later when the car was recovered and Mary Jo's body was found inside.
0: The initial reaction from the divers was that she hadn't actually drowned. She'd suffocated. And if Ted Kennedy had called the police immediately, she may still be alive today. when Massachusetts Senator and one-time aspiring President Ted Kennedy crashed his car into Polka Pond and fled the scene, leaving his passenger Mary Jo Kopechny to die in the submerged vehicle.
1: Kennedy turned himself in and reported the accident to the police the next day, after the car was recovered with Kopechny's body inside. The fallout from the scandal was the dominant force that prevented Kennedy from securing a nomination for President of the United States.
0: Though 50 years have passed since the tragedy, there are still certain details about what really happened that night that raise questions about a potential cover-up.
1: Was Ted really driving the car? Why did he wait so long to report the accident? And what role did the various blue blood power brokers of New England play in the saga that unfolded? This episode
0: is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969.
1: From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals.
0: We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and Muhammad Ali's ban from the boxing ring. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoyed today's episode. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Scandal seems like a natural component of politics. For as long as America has been a country, the men and women who have sought the power and influence that comes with public office have opened themselves up to public scrutiny.
1: The imaging and character emphasis that goes into making a successful politician strives for an ideal, perfect person.
0: But a perfect person doesn't exist and the history of American politics is, by and large, defined by figures whose personal flaws boiled over to tarnish their pristine public images.
1: But the Chappaquiddick incident stands apart even from the most appalling public scandals, largely because it represented the final downfall of the Kennedy family.
0: To truly convey how impactful Chappaquiddick was on the Kennedy family and the country, we need to first explore just how powerful the Kennedys used to be.
1: America is a democratic republic. It's built upon the ideas of individuals elected by the people to serve the people.
0: There has never been an American king, but for a large part of the first half of the 20th century, the Kennedys were probably the closest thing America had to a royal
1: family. The family's patriarch was Joseph Kennedy Sr. Born in 1888, Joseph Sr. was a business magnate who made his fortune in the 1910s and 1920s through the stock market and the investments in Hollywood-based movie studios, among other ventures.
0: There has been a long-standing, unconfirmed myth that Joseph Kennedy Sr. supplemented his already sizable fortune by smuggling liquor throughout the United States during the Prohibition period in the
1: 1920s. This rumor has been debunked a number of times. Its prevalence as a part of Joseph Kennedy's legacy is largely due to historians who seek to find reasons why Joseph Senior never ran for president of the United States.
0: Joseph Senior also didn't do much to distance himself from the rumor, especially after he secured the licenses to import liquor from England after prohibition was lifted in 1933.
1: By the end of the Roaring Twenties, Joseph Kennedy was rich, powerful, influential, and ready to take the next step in securing his legacy by becoming involved in politics.
0: His political career seemed to get off to the right start. He first became embroiled in politics in 1932 as a supporter for Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidential campaign.
1: After Roosevelt won, he established the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and appointed Joseph Sr. as its first chairman. Joseph Sr. only served in the position for a year, but his efforts to establish safeguards and regulations within the stock market made him a hero among investors.
0: Joseph Sr. continued to thrive within Roosevelt's administration. He had the support of America's growing population of Irish Catholics, which at that point in American history were largely discriminated against by the Protestant majority.
1: The highest office Joseph Sr. ever reached was ambassador to the United Kingdom, a role he held from 1938 to 1940.
0: Joseph Kennedy Sr. wasn't shy about his ambition to run for president in the 1940 election. His position as ambassador would have put him in a prime spot to go for the nomination.
1: But his actions as ambassador would lead to his downfall.
0: Joseph Sr. made a number of political blunders while representing America to the
1: United Kingdom. This was 1938, during the build-up to the outbreak of World War II in Europe, and Joseph Sr. wasn't as hard on Adolf Hitler as many felt he should be.
0: Joseph Sr. butted heads with Winston Churchill, who famously spent the lead-up to World War II arguing that there was no negotiating with Hitler. Though he was the ambassador to the UK, Joseph senior spent a good deal of his time in London undercutting British interests by trying to establish a line of communication between the United States and Berlin.
1: After the war broke out in 1939, Joseph senior took a staunch isolationist position and argued against American aid to the United Kingdom, even as its towns were victims of nightly bombings by German planes
0: and worst of all joseph kennedy was a not so private anti-semite as nazi germany furthered its horrific persecution of europe's jewish citizens joseph senior was quoted more than once saying something to the effect of quote they brought it on themselves
1: joseph senior was not popular in britain And as war between America and Germany seemed more and more like an inevitability, his isolationist views came to define him as a defeatist, non-patriot.
0: He wasn't outright fired from Roosevelt's administration. The party still needed him to rally the Irish Catholic vote for the Democrats. But he and the president had a falling out, particularly after Roosevelt ran for and won his unprecedented third term.
1: Joseph Sr. resigned as ambassador in 1940. He tried to write his political image by offering to throw his considerable wealth and influence behind the American war efforts. But his years of trying to appease Hitler had essentially made him persona non grata among the allied leaders.
0: He had no choice but to resign from politics and give up any hope of becoming the first Irish Catholic president of the United States.
1: But Joseph Sr. wasn't a man to abandon his ambition so easily. If he couldn't become president on his own, he would make sure that his sons would.
0: There's a religious verse about how the sins of the father are visited on the sons, but the same can be said of the father's goals.
1: Joseph Sr. had four sons, Joseph Jr., born 1915, John, born 1917, Robert, born 1925, and finally Edward, known as Ted, born 1932.
0: Joseph Jr., the oldest Kennedy son, was the one Joseph Sr. hoped would one day become president.
1: To that end, Joseph Sr. groomed Joseph Jr. from a young age for a life in politics, and Joseph Jr. took the role quite well. He attended Harvard Law School, his father's alma mater, but left in his final year to enlist with the Navy and fight in World War II. His plan, as he told his friends, was to run for the House of Representatives in the 1946 election, presumably after the war was over. From there, he would follow his own political star all the way to the White House.
0: The plan never came to pass. On August 12, 1944, Joseph Kennedy Jr. was killed in action when his plane was shot down over England.
1: Joe Sr.'s perfect son, his best chance to put a Kennedy in the White House, was gone. And so the pressure fell to the second oldest Kennedy boy, John.
0: Up to that point, John F. Kennedy had enjoyed relative freedom in life, at least compared to his older brother. John had spent most of his life in and out of hospitals and infirmaries for a number of chronic health issues, including gastritis and back pain.
1: Like Joseph Jr., John had attended Harvard before enlisting to serve in the military for World War II. When he first joined the Navy in 1941, John had some ideas of what he wanted his life to be after the war. Prior to the war, Kennedy had traveled to a number of countries including Germany and Britain and his college thesis about the political situation in Britain that would lead to the breakout of the war was actually published in 1940. John thought that this might be his calling as a political writer and reporter.
0: But everything changed when his brother died.
1: With Joe Jr.'s death, John was now the eldest Kennedy boy. And after a lifetime of being just to the side of his father's focus, John Kennedy was now Joseph Senior's main project in life. Joe was going to put one of his sons in the White House.
0: And he did it. After World War II, Joseph bankrolled John's first campaign for representative of the 11th district of Massachusetts. John won and served in the house for six years. He successfully ran for the Senate in 1953 and served as a Massachusetts senator for seven more years.
1: And in 1960, Joseph Sr. got his wish when John F. Kennedy was elected as the president of the United States. He was the first Catholic to hold that position.
0: This could have seemed like something of a redemptive arc for Joe Sr., after botching his own political career and losing the son whom he'd groomed for politics, he was able to steer John's
1: meteoric rise. But the curse that some have rumored plagues the Kennedy family would not be satisfied.
0: On November 22, 1963, as John was touring the country in preparation for his reelection, he was assassinated on the streets of Dallas. John's legacy, and by extension Joseph Senior's legacy, was permanently tarnished by the tragedy. All that John had done, and all that he might have done as president, was doomed to be overshadowed by the killing. But Joseph Senior still had more sons.
1: With Joe Junior and John deceased, Robert Kennedy was now the oldest Kennedy boy. Robert had served as the Attorney General under John's administration, and many Kennedy historians believe that Robert may have even been the choice for vice president in John's re-election campaign.
0: And for most of the late 1960s, it seemed like Robert had a straight path to the White House. After President Lyndon Johnson announced he would not seek re-election in 1968, Robert was the natural choice to lead the Democratic ticket.
1: After the tragedy of John Kennedy's death, Robert Kennedy may have been the first Kennedy to become president and actually serve a full term.
0: But then, in 1968, just after he was declared the winner of the California primary, Robert Kennedy was shot. He died of his wounds the next day.
1: In the span of 25 years, Joseph Kennedy Sr. had lost three sons to violence.
0: Ted the youngest Kennedy son who was only 34 was suddenly the heir apparent to the dynasty all of Joseph senior's hopes and ambitions rested on Ted's shoulders the pressure was now on Ted to become the third Kennedy to run for president but his political career would be maligned by scandal long before he ever got the chance
1: up next We'll discuss the events of July 18, 1969, and the death of Mary Jo Kopechny.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: By the end of 1968, three of Joseph Kennedy Sr.'s sons had died.
0: Joe Jr., John, and now Robert, had all been killed before they could fulfill the extent of the ambition their father had.
1: Joseph Senior, perhaps due to his own botched intent to become president, was adamant about putting the Kennedy boys in the White House.
0: He had succeeded with his second son, John, but John's political legacy was permanently interrupted when he was tragically assassinated in
1: 1963. With Robert dead as well, and just as he seemed to be on the cusp of kicking off a successful presidential campaign, The weight of the Kennedy name now fell to the youngest Kennedy's son, Ted.
0: Edward Teddy Kennedy, born 1932, wasn't exactly the black sheep of the Kennedy family.
1: But as the youngest of nine children, Teddy was afforded leeway to fail in a manner that his brothers were never allowed.
0: While Joe Sr. had been laser-focused on ensuring that Joe Jr., and, to a lesser extent, John and Robert, worked to succeed in every aspect of their lives so as to prepare them for life in the public spotlight, he seemed to not have the same level of commitment to ensuring that Teddy
1: excelled. Teddy had middling grades throughout his childhood, though his large size made him a natural football player.
0: Despite the lack of any real academic achievement, he attended Harvard University for undergraduate, just as his father and brothers had done.
1: Sometimes a name is more important than a transcript.
0: Teddy was in his freshman year in college while his brother John was serving his first term in the House of Representatives. That, combined with the family's already notable profile across American news and politics, meant that there was a public spotlight
1: on anyone with a Kennedy name. As the youngest child, Teddy likely wasn't used to having much attention directed his way. This is why he probably thought he could get away with cheating on an exam in his freshman year. In
0: 1951, Teddy arranged for another student to take one of his exams. He was caught and both students were expelled.
1: That's not the kind of backstory you want to see in someone who wants to be president.
0: Teddy, expelled and with few options of other schools that would actually take him, enrolled in the military.
1: He served for two years in the military police and Joseph Senior used his own military connections to ensure that Teddy wasn't deployed in the Korean War, which was ongoing at that time.
0: Teddy was discharged in 1953. At that time, Harvard University allowed expelled students to apply for readmission after a few years. Teddy was readmitted, again, no doubt, due to the workings of his father and his own family name.
1: Teddy graduated from Harvard in 1956 when he was 24, but he was rejected by Harvard Law School due to his poor grades and the prior expulsion. The academic dishonesty on his record should have prevented him from getting into most law schools, but he managed to follow in Robert's footsteps and attend the University of Virginia School of Law.
0: As he had for his entire life, Teddy performed middlingly in his academics, though in law school he started to develop a reputation for his strong oratory
1: skills. While he was in law school, Teddy also had his first real run-in with the law when he was charged with reckless driving.
0: Nothing came of the charge, and it certainly didn't seem to hurt his political aspirations. But then again, we must always consider Teddy's powerful family and their ability to put him in positions to succeed.
1: Teddy was named manager of John Kennedy's election campaign for the Senate in 1958. After graduating law school in 1959, he went on to help manage John's campaign for president. After John won the 1960 election, he wanted Teddy to take his vacant Senate seat, even though that wouldn't be possible for two more years since Teddy was only 28 in 1960.
0: Teddy claimed to have grappled for a time with whether or not he wanted to bank on his family name to begin his political career as a senator when most politicians served several terms in smaller offices before reaching the Senate. Teddy, then 28, wasn't even old enough to take the job since the minimum age for US senators is 30, but he ultimately decided he wanted the job. At Joe Sr.'s urging, John Kennedy appointed an interim officer to the Senate seat until 1962 when Teddy turned 30 and was able to take
1: the position. Once he was 30, Teddy ran for the seat in a special election and, despite his inexperience, criminal record, and the public revelation of his expulsion from Harvard, he won.
0: No one could have known back in 1962, but Senator for Massachusetts was actually the last job Teddy Kennedy would ever have. He'd serve in the role for nearly eight consecutive terms until his death in 2009.
1: In 1964, less than a year after John Kennedy's assassination, Teddy had his own brush with death when he barely survived a plane crash.
0: He suffered severe injuries, and even after months in the hospital, chronic back pain would plague him for the rest of his life.
1: Teddy evolved his political views throughout the rest of the 1960s, living through his brother John's assassination and later, Robert's murder in 1968.
0: Robert's assassination sent the Democratic Party into chaos and the Democrats were already at a disadvantage in that incumbent President Lyndon Baines Johnson was electing not to run. Robert was the most popular option and with his death so close to the actual election, there was no one else for the Democrats to put forward who would stand a chance against the Republican nominee Richard Nixon.
1: There was actually a movement among the Democrats to have Ted Kennedy take Robert's place as a nominee. Ted declined though, both out of respect for his brother's memory and his own acknowledgement that he wasn't experienced enough to be president.
0: Still, the thought wasn't new to his mind. After Richard Nixon won the presidency in 1968, Ted won the election to become the majority whip in the Senate. It was a given among the establishment Democrats that Ted Kennedy would make a bid to run against Nixon in the 1972 election.
1: But then the summer of 1969 happened.
0: On July 18th, 1969, while most of the country was glued to their radios waiting for updates on the recently launched Apollo 11 moon mission, Ted Kennedy set up a party.
1: The purpose of the gathering was to host a reunion of six women, Rosemary Keough, Nance and Mary Ellen Lyons, Susan Tannenbaum, Esther Newberg, and 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny.
0: These women had all worked on Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign and had come to be known as the boiler room girls due to the windowless room they all worked out of on the
1: campaign. This was a group of young, smart women whose time as an effective political team had been tragically cut short by Robert's murder. They had reunited a number of times prior to the July 18th gathering. The party was
0: hosted on Chappaquiddick Island, a ferry-accessible retreat east of
1: Martha's Vineyard. In addition to the boiler room girls, six men attended, including Ted Kennedy, his cousin Joseph Gargan, and Paul Markham, the United States District Attorney in Massachusetts.
0: As the party started to wind down, Ted prepared to leave. His wife, Joan, was pregnant at the time and bedridden due to her two previous miscarriages, and Ted was ready to return to her.
1: He started making the rounds to say his goodbyes at 11.15. On his way out, he passed Mary Jo. Mary Jo was staying at a hotel near Ted's, and she asked if he could give her a ride back.
0: Ted Kennedy didn't normally drive himself. As a wealthy senator, he had a chauffeur for most of his transport needs.
1: Ted's chauffeur, John Crimmins, was actually at the party that night. When Ted saw that John was still eating and enjoying himself, he asked for the keys to his car and told John he'd drive himself home.
0: The rest of the guests were too preoccupied with the party to notice Mary Joe leave with Kennedy. When they realized she was gone, they all assumed she had left on her own.
1: Ted and Mary Joe climbed into Ted's black Oldsmobile and started off down the narrow, unlit, paved road that would take them to the mainland.
0: For Mary Jo, it was the last time she'd set foot on dry land.
1: Next, we'll discuss the death of Mary Jo Kopechny and the fallout of Ted Kennedy's actions after the fateful crash. Now, back to the story.
0: On the evening of July 18, 1969, Ted Kennedy left a party on Chappaquiddick Island in his black Oldsmobile. He had a passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny, whom he was giving a ride home. Ted didn't normally drive himself. He had a chauffeur, John Crimmins, but he chose to take the keys and drive his black Oldsmobile
1: himself that night. According to Ted's later testimony, he left the party with Mary Jo at around 11.15 in the evening.
0: Chappaquiddick was a popular destination in part because it was secluded, and as such, a number of its roads were unpaved and
1: unlit. Shortly after driving away from the party, Ted made a wrong turn and started down Dyke Road, which at that time was an unlit, unpaved road that led to a dead end past Dyke Bridge. In
0: 1969, Dyke Bridge did not have a guardrail.
1: Ted was driving too fast to stop the car once he caught sight of the narrow crossway.
0: He lost control of the Oldsmobile just before he hit the crossing. The car shot over the edge and hit the water.
1: The car sank quickly as it filled with water. The momentum from the fall off the bridge caused it to turn over before it finally landed at the floor of Poka Pond.
0: Ted had hit his head in the crash. He was panicked and struggling as the car filled with dark, cold water.
1: Mary Jo was screaming. She was stuck. She couldn't get out.
0: Ted managed to free himself through the car window and swam up to the surface.
1: As he gasped for air, he realized that Mary Jo had not followed him. She was still stuck in the car.
0: Ted swam back down to the car to try and free Mary Joe, But it was dark, and the only source of light was the distant moon and the murky shine of the submerged car's headlights.
1: He swam down to the car, but couldn't get back in to reach her. He went up for air again.
0: And swam down again. He repeated this a number of times, until the horrible truth finally dawned on him
1: he couldn't free mary joe and so many minutes had passed that by now she had surely already drowned
0: soaked and disoriented ted swam back to shore
1: and this is as the story goes where his actions shift from the understandable to the unforgivable
0: ted sat on the riverbank for a few minutes likely recovering from the shock the cold, and the exertion of trying to reach Mary Joe in the car.
1: Then, he went home.
0: Looking through the records of what was going on at Chappaquiddick that night, Ted almost certainly walked past the Dyke House, aptly named for its location on Dyke Road.
1: On the night of July 18th, the Dyke House's front porch light was on. Someone was home.
0: But Ted Kennedy walked right past it, He didn't go to the house to try and use the telephone to call for help.
1: It was just over a mile back to the cottage where the party was still in full swing. Ted also passed a fire station where he could have rushed in to ask for help.
0: The cottage was actually across the street from the fire department, meaning Ted would have walked right past the building on his way back to the party. Again, he didn't alert emergency personnel about what had happened.
1: Once there, he summoned his cousin, Joe Gargan, and his friend, Paul Markham.
0: Ted told these two men what happened. Together, the three of them drove back to the crash site.
1: Markham and Gargan both stripped out of their clothes before diving in to try and recover Mary Jo.
0: One might wonder why they would take the time to remove their clothes, given that a woman was trapped in a submerged vehicle and had been for at least half an hour.
1: Of course, neither of the men could speak as to why they did it. But consider the fact that they'd have a hard time explaining away wet clothes if anyone saw them later, and you can start to connect the dots.
0: Like Kennedy, the men couldn't reach her. The water was too dark, and the car was at
1: such an angle
0: that they couldn't get inside it.
1: The men spoke in hushed whispers as they walked to the ferry dock on Chappaquiddick Island. Gargan and Markham made it clear in no uncertain terms that Ted should call the police immediately. Ted agreed, said he would, and then jumped in the ocean to make the swim back to the mainland.
0: Ted reached his hotel after two in the morning, close to 2.30 a.m. after he had showered and changed into dry clothes, Ted approached the innkeeper and stated that he'd been awakened by some
1: noise. In doing so, Ted seemed to have created something of an alibi for himself.
0: Gargan and Markham met up with Ted the next morning at 8 a.m. They were both furious to find out he had not kept his promise to tell the police about the accident.
1: We can't know what was going on in Ted's head at that moment, but his actions would seem to be those of a man who was hoping that that car simply wouldn't be found.
0: At that same time, as the tide was moving out, a fisherman and his son spotted Kennedy's car submerged in the water. The police were called, and at 8.45, the captain of the Edgartown Fire Rescue, John Farrar, was summoned with his diving gear to swim down into the car. He found Kopechny's body in the passenger seat.
1: They recovered her within 10 minutes and ID'd the license plate to find that it was registered to Ted Kennedy.
0: Close to 10 a.m., Ted received word that police had found the car and the body. Over 10 hours after the accident, Ted Kennedy appeared at the Edgartown police station and reported the
1: incident. In his official statement, Kennedy confessed to crashing the car and stated that he was both exhausted from his attempts at trying to save Mary Jo and in a state of general shock from the accident itself. This was why he failed to report the accident immediately. Ted claimed that he came to his senses after getting a few hours of sleep and that he contacted police immediately afterwards.
0: Kennedy appeared in court a week later, on July 25th, on charges of leaving the scene of an accident. In the week between the incident and the court appearance, the details of what had really happened only became muddier and muddier with questions.
1: How did Ted accidentally turn onto Dyke Road? The turnoff required a driver to make a deliberate right turn from a curving paved road. Ted and Mary Jo had likely driven that route a number of times just on that day.
0: Why did Mary Jo leave her purse and keys behind at the party if Ted was supposedly taking her to her hotel?
1: Ted later claimed that he suffered a concussion as a result of the crash, and that contributed to his inability to think straight or make rational decisions.
0: But then, how was he able to swim back to the mainland to reach his hotel? A concussion can cause disorientation and fatigue, neither of which you want to be dealing with if you're planning on making a long night swim. Plus, Ted still suffered from the chronic back pain brought on by the plane crash he'd been in five years before. Could he really have made that swim if he wasn't of sound mind?
1: And finally, who could account for the testimony of Deputy Sheriff Christopher Look? Look had been working on the night of July 18th, and in the fallout of the accident, he testified to seeing a car on Chappaquiddick Road that matched the description of Kennedy's Oldsmobile. The characters Look recalled from the license plate also matched with Kennedy's.
0: The smoking gun here is the timeline. Look reported seeing this car at around 12.40 a.m., Yet Kennedy testified that he left the party with Mary Jo at 11.15 and people at the party corroborated this. If everyone involved was telling the truth, that would mean that Ted and Mary Jo were in the car for over an hour before crashing just a mile away from the party. So
1: what happened during that hour?
0: The incident and Ted Kennedy's involvement was a national news story. Though it received less attention than it likely should have, remember at that time the entire country was fixated on the impending moon landing, which would occur on July 20th,
1: 1969. At the July 25th hearing, Kennedy pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a two-month suspended jail sentence.
0: In other words, he got a slap on the wrist.
1: That same night, Ted went on TV and delivered a prepared statement. In it, he clarified that he had not behaved immorally with Mary Jo, meaning he was not engaging in an affair with her. He wasn't under the influence. He had no excuse for his failure to report the accident other than his shock and confusion.
0: He concluded his statement by asking his constituents in Massachusetts to help him process what had happened, but clarified that the decision to resign from the Senate would be his to make.
1: And he didn't make it. As we said, Ted Kennedy occupied his Senate seat until the end of his life in 2009.
0: But there was significant fallout due to the highly publicized
1: scandal. To be blunt, the Chappaquiddick incident of 1969 is likely the sole reason that Ted Kennedy never became president.
0: Despite the PR black mark against him, Ted was reelected by an overwhelming majority to his Senate seat in 1970. It was widely assumed he was going to confirm the rumors and run for president in 1972, but he didn't. Ted Kennedy was, at least on the national stage, inextricably linked to the Chappaquiddick scandal. In 1974, he once again made the decision not to run in the 1976 election, in part because he knew the scandal would dampen his
1: chances. Ted finally made his move in 1979, when he challenged incumbent President Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination.
0: He lost the primary, badly and Carter's constant reference to the Chappaquiddick incident in the media and in the publicized debates largely contributed to that loss.
1: In 2018, a film about the incident, appropriately titled Chappaquiddick, was released. There's a scene in the film that takes place just after Ted Kennedy returned to the party from the lake. The line he says is, by the admission of the film's writers, a fiction, a speculation on their part. But they justified it by claiming they looked into what was known about the man himself and what was likely going through his head at that time. And they wrote the line based on that foundation of research.
0: In the film, when Ted Kennedy first summons Joe Gargan and Paul Markham, he tells them bluntly, I'm never going to be president.
1: He may not have said it in real life, but the sentiment is true all the same.
0: Ted Kennedy passed away in 2009. With his death, the only two people who really knew what happened on the night of July 18th, 1969, were now gone and could no longer answer any lingering questions.
1: But there still are lingering questions.
0: Our first conspiracy deals with the so-called missing hour between when Kennedy left the party with Mary Joe, and when he was suspected to have been seen by Sheriff Look over an hour later. There's a number of speculative possibilities, including the theory that Ted was drunk and Mary Joe forced him to pull over and sober up, or that Ted wasn't even driving the car. After spotting Sheriff Look, Ted left Mary Joe to drive herself home Mary Jo, unacquainted with the road, got lost and crashed into the pond.
1: Our second conspiracy deals with the status of Mary Jo herself. Was she even alive when the car crashed? Did she drown as is commonly suspected, or did she survive for hours in an underwater air bubble, doomed only because Ted waited so long to report the accident?
0: Our third conspiracy asks the question, Was there a cover-up or an attempt of one? Ted Kennedy called a number of his father's powerful friends in the hours before he spoke to the police. What was said in those calls? What was he hoping to accomplish? Was he trying to hide something even more despicable than leaving a woman behind to
1: die? There's a conventional wisdom that scandals are just part of the political game. When you're embroiled in one, you just need to wait for the press to move on to the next big story.
0: But Chappaquiddick has endured for 50 years since the incident. The unanswered questions, and more seriously, the fact that a man who clearly felt the Oval Office was his birthright could be capable of such a callous act of negligence.
1: Joe Kennedy Sr. lived just long enough to witness the shameful period that ended his dreams of having a son finish a term as president. He died shortly after the incident in November of 1969.
0: When we think of John Kennedy, we think of assassination. When we think of Robert Kennedy, we think of assassination. But when we think of Ted Kennedy, we think of
1: Chappaquiddick. Thanks again for tuning into our Conspiracy theories Summer of 69 special. Next week, we'll be back with part two.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, check out
1: ParCast's
0: continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer,
1: Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
1: And the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, it is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.